Well, today, for a few minutes anyway, we uh, want to continue our uh, study of uh, the book of Acts, and we are uh, in Acts chapter 17. And now uh, we've come to a very interesting place, and that is Paul is now in Athens, Athens. And, uh, you know, last year, two years ago, I did an MSI class on the speeches in Acts, uh, which was really very interesting. The speeches, very, very important uh, in, the, in the book of Acts. They, they sort of move the story along, each of the speeches. Some of them are only a few lines long, by the way. They're not just the famous long speeches. But anyway, uh, the one in chapter 17 is pretty significant. Uh, and so just to set the, uh, set the uh, scene, so we know that Paul and Silas have been uh, pretty busy. They were in Thessalonica. Well, they were in Philippi. I, I, they saw some, you know, they, they, they saw people come to faith and really began that ministry. They ended up in jail, of course, uh, but miraculously uh, come out of jail and, uh, and then leave the town. Uh, and head to Thessalonica. They, uh, as I said last week, uh, you know, it's interesting that at the end of chapter 16, uh, when they uh, are miraculously released from the uh, a jail, that Paul questions uh, them and says, hey, you know, I'm a Roman citizen and I did not receive due process. Uh, and so please have the, le the leaders of the city come and they can release me, you know? Uh, and uh, it's rather interesting because one of the things that he does not demand is like a trial or to have his name cleared or anything like that. Uh, in fact, what he ends up doing is leaving, leaving the city along with uh, Silas, and they go to Thessalonica. There they do what they always do. They go to a synagogue. They see some people come uh, to faith. But uh, there's, uh, they, there's a lot of chaos in Thessalonica because of them. Uh, and uh, they end up kind of sneaking out of town, right? Uh, at night, they go to Berea. They go to Berea. They, uh, they, have, uh, they do the same thing. They go to the synagogue. They, have, uh, uh, they, they see more people come to faith. That's where it's, they reason from the scriptures, right? Uh, and, uh, but, the but some... Um, Troublemakers from Thessalonica go to Berea, right? And uh, raise a ruckus there. Next thing you know, they leave. They, they don't stick around. See, it's very interesting. They don't stick around, uh, you know, and fight, so to speak. They don't stick around and say, but wait a minute. We want to, you know, uh, hey, you know, it's not right that you're doing this. No, they leave. They go somewhere else because their goal is very, it's a very singular goal. And that is to bring the good news of the Messiah to people. Uh, it, clearly, what we see demonstrated is so many of the axioms that we read in, like Paul's letters, lived out here. Like to live as a Messiah, to die as gain. You know, it's not about me. I press on. You know, and last week we read part of the letter that he writes to the, to the Thessalonians, right? And he talks about uh, the, the persecution and uh, and, and so on. And, he, and basically what he tells the people that are there is live a quiet life, work with your hands, and be a good testimony to outsiders and love one another. 
and be moral. That's what he tells them to do. He doesn't say anything about the authorities, uh, whether it's in the synagogue or of the city. He doesn't say anything about the persecutors or, you know, uh, no. Uh, just be a good testimony because what we're called to do, whether we are the recipients of, the, of the, the message or we're the apostles, we're called to be this testimony uh, of, of the Messiah. I, and uh, whatever the cost may be, you just go in it knowing that there's going to be persecution and misunderstanding. And it's not about trying to get out of the persecution or even trying to fix all the misunderstandings. But you kind of like, you know, you, you get the idea from Paul. It's, we share the message and whoever receives it, receives it. Uh, and, and we keep going. So now he is in Athens and he told uh, when he came to, um, uh, to uh, Athens, uh, remember that uh, Silas is his partner and Timothy is sort of the protege. Timothy is being mentored. And so Paul uh, instructs that Silas and Timothy remain behind in Berea for a while. Maybe it's because the people were more receptive to the, to the good news, you know, uh, and that then, then they would meet up with him in Athens. So he comes to Athens. Now, Athens is a little bit of a different animal than all these other cities that he's gone to. It's a Greek city, okay? It, uh, Athens is a Greek city, and it was, uh, in a sense, kind of like an island a little bit. It was not so much under uh, the domination. It wasn't a Roman colony, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It was not a Roman colony. It was kind of like a city unto itself. Uh, and it was a very religious city, okay? Uh, in fact, Josephus refers, refers to it as a pious city, okay, Athens, right? Uh, and, uh, and so uh, he comes to uh, Athens, and, uh, you know, uh, some habits are hard to break, right? What does he do? He goes to the synagogue. So it says here in verse 16 of Acts 17, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So uh, when it says he was provoked within him, it doesn't mean he was mad, okay? It doesn't mean he was like, I'm really angry at what I'm seeing. It was that he's getting stirred up. He stirred up inside. You ever get that feeling? You know, I can tell you that, uh, and I've, I've shared this story before. When I uh, had to tell my parents that I was uh, a believer in Yeshua, it was the worst possible place. It was in the middle of a synagogue of 2,000 people uh, on the, uh, one of the holiest days of the year, okay? Uh, and uh, and all, I didn't know a whole lot, uh, but I knew there were some, a couple of other Jewish believers in that sea of people in that synagogue. Uh, and I can remember someone telling me a verse about two or three people together. I hardly knew anything. I, you know, I hardly knew anything. And I thought, well, maybe that's a sign. Like, I know that these other people are here. Like, like, I need to tell my parents. And it starts bubbling up, right? You know? And that's kind of like what Paul was experiencing here. He's seeing this city of idols and it's like i've got it you know i i've got to say something uh you know as he's in the marketplace not only in the jewish quarter not only uh in the synagogue and not only uh to individuals 
but uh, it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, uh, I've got to say something. So uh, he's beholding the city full of idols. Uh, can't you just picture him sort of walking around, seeing, seeing all, all of this, right? And his heart grieved within him uh, because he knew that this calling was not only to Israel, of course, uh, but to the Gentiles. And, you know, in Romans chapter 1, he gives us a little bit of a, there's some interesting reflections that he writes to the Roman believers that kind of apply to what's going on here in, uh, in Athens. Uh, in uh, chapter 1 of Romans in verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, right? And the word there for Greek is not ethnos. It's not the word for Gentile. He's not talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about Greeks, like at the top of the line of the, of the culture uh, and of philosophy, uh, you know, uh, and of... Uh, uh, you know, all that we might call sophistication, right? This is the power of God, not only for Jews, not just for, you know, for us Jews, but for those who, who are reared in the philosophies of, of Stoicism, uh, Epicureanism, those who are, you know, knowledgeable and who, have, who, uh, who are well-read and well-written, okay? So he's saying it's like from A to Z. But he uses the word Greeks uh, uh, here for, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, it's also not a numerical thing. Uh, like um, number one is Jews, number two is Greeks. No, he's saying it's a Jewish thing, but it's also for the Greeks that the power of God breaks through philosophies. The power of God breaks through worldly sophistication. Uh, the power of God breaks through uh, even to those who, who look down upon us and think of us as simpletons, you know, or heretics or apostates uh, or people that uh, have psychological problems or, uh, you know, you know what, what, whatever it may be, okay? Or very narrow, you very narrow-minded, right? Uh, that the power of God breaks through to those people. Okay? Very important. Paul had this inside of him. That's what gave him the courage to speak out. And the way he speaks out is really very, very interesting. Because if you read on in the first chapter of Romans, he, uh, he talks um, about, uh, like in verse 21, no, no, I better read. In verse 20, he says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and foolish in their hearts, dark and provising, pro professing to be wise, they became fools and, you know, and so on and so forth. Now, here in Acts 17, he's in Athens and he's talking to these idolatrous, sophisticated people. Uh, and he doesn't point his finger at them 
and say, you fools. No, he doesn't do that. His desire is to appeal to them. What he says to the believers in Rome about idolatry is not what he says to the idolaters, because what he says to the idolaters is because he wants to be attracted to them and draw them in so that they might know the Lord, very much like Yeshua. When you read in the Gospels about what he says to sinners and the tax gatherers, it's a lot less difficult than what he says to the Pharisees. <laughs> you know, he attracts, he's, he, Paul, who's imitating Yeshua, it, uh, wants to attract those who don't know the Lord and speak to them in a way they can understand it. In, in, in a way that, that does not say, yes, this is good, but shows a level of accepting the human being. And so it's really very interesting, very interesting. Okay, so we see here uh, uh, in verse 18, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Yeshua and the resurrection. So Epicureans and Stoics were very interesting. Epicureans kind of didn't, didn't put a lot of stock in the gods, didn't put a lot of stock in an afterlife, and, and really were very desirous of achieving pleasure as an end goal, as, as an end game in this world. Very much like today. <laughs> you, you know, kind of like... Uh, like a, uh, an agnostic uh, a person in, in a way. I'm you know, not quite sure about God and all that, but uh, you know, the goal is to you know, get the most out of this life. The Stoics were different. The Stoic philosophy was kind of like a pantheism, kind of like we're part of the creation. We, you know, and, and so we do put stock in nature and the gods, and very serious uh, about it, and not about uh, enjoyment uh, in, in this world. They, they, the Epicure now, the reason Luke may use Epicureans and Stoics is because that's, all, that's like saying the gospel is the power of God, not only for Jews, but for Greeks, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the other. Uh, and so Epicureanism and Stoicism was kind of like the two, the two ends uh, you might say, of the philosophical uh, spectrum. Uh, and, they, and, and notice uh, there, there's, a sense of, uh, there's a sense of inquiry, you know, there, there's a, a, a little bit of that, a little bit of inquisitiveness, but, but also, uh, you know, who is this guy? Who is this rank Jew speaking? What is he talking about? You know, it's not the uh, it's not the typical fare that we're going to get from the Jews, but it's something uh, a, a little bit different. And you have to remember that um, you know, uh, going they they bring him uh, to the Areopagus, which is like you know the the uh, the place where you would you would hold uh, everything from lectures to trials, right? Uh, and this was a form of entertainment. Let's hear what this one has to say. You know, it was stimulating, stimulating, and perhaps humorous, uh, you, you know. And so, very interesting. 
uh, so Paul shows up, so to speak. Now there's a question, was he, was, it, was he arrested and they made him do this or did they just bring him there? Probably he wasn't under arrest because at the end he just leaves. You know, there's no judgment uh, or anything like that. But from what we know about him, this was an opportunity. This was an opportunity, uh, you know, to stand in the marketplace of one of the most influential cities uh, in the world at the time. Uh, and to share this message. And he wasn't uh, embarrassed about the God of Israel, and he wasn't embarrassed about uh, Yeshua. He wasn't intimidated. He wasn't scared uh, because, you know, he, he knew in his heart what his calling and his message and his mission was and what he had personally experienced, right? All right, so they say to him, uh, so it says in verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is and which, which you is which you are proclaiming for you are bringing some strange things to our ears and we want to know what these things uh, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting them used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. In other words, it was kind of like uh, you know, this is a, a form of entertainment. What did you hear when you, I just returned from Rome and I heard this, or uh, there's this strange teaching, uh, you know, coming out of this city or something new. This was, you know, in the ancient world, uh, this was very certainly a, a way of communicating, uh, of, of learning new things and sort of uh, the primitive information highway, we might say, you know, okay. So it says in verse 22, and Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, doesn't that just remind, it reminds you very much of what he says in Acts 13 with his men of Israel, you know? So he, he's, not, he's not speaking to them like, you pagans, right? You know, men of Athens, that's a very complimentary thing to say, right? All right. I, uh, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Again, nothing to disagree with uh, uh, here. You're very religious. They do. They have idols, uh, you know, galore, right? Okay. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim. Uh, uh, to you. Okay, so what he, without go, you know, I, uh, we're not going to go through all the details of what everything, uh, you know, uh, the significance of, of every detail, but suffice it to say that he finds something that he can use to talk about the one and only God of Israel. Now, their altar to an unknown God is not, it doesn't say, you know, in small print, to an unknown God, we think it's the God of Israel, but we're not sure. Uh, you, you, know, you know what I mean? There was, they certainly held to the belief in a pantheon of gods, right? Uh, and, uh, and so one of many gods, Paul is saying here, uh, okay, unknown God, God can be known. Okay, and so he takes uh, uh, what was something certainly very pagan 
and begin uses it as his jumping off place to talking about the one and only uh, a god of Israel. Okay, uh, and of course they had varieties uh, of gods that were represented uh, by uh, whether they were silver, iron, stone, wood. No matter what they were, these were the invisible uh, deities of the of uh, the Athenians and of the uh, you know and and of the nations. And so, what Paul is now going to do is say, "I'm going to tell you the truth about God. I'm going to tell you what what you think is unknown or unknowable. I'm going to tell you." Now, there's some audacity uh, there, you know, when he says. What you uh, worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Very interesting that they didn't just burn them up right there. You know what I mean? Uh, but uh, they evidently wanted, in, wanted to hear what he had uh, to say. So he says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breathes uh, and breath to all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we all live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are uh, his offspring. Okay, Th that whole uh, statement, right, uh, is a very interesting because parts of it they would agree with. <laughs> you know, uh, this was not an a statement diametrically opposed to everything the uh, Athenians uh uh, held to, but what he is saying is that this message that he's talking about, and the one whom he's talking about, uh, is the one and only creator, not only of the Jews, but of the Greeks, of, of all of us, right? Uh, and that uh, he is the creator and sustainer of all life, period. So he begins with God, the, the God whom I'm proclaiming is the creator of everything, okay? And like your poets say, right, uh, we are all his offspring. Now, that's really very interesting. Nowhere is he quoting uh, Psalm 110. Nowhere is he quoting the Tanakh at all. Nowhere is he even saying the prophets of Israel have said uh, or anything like that. He's just telling truths, right? Uh, but the only place that he refers to is their own literature. That's pretty interesting, uh, isn't it? But uh, the, the, the truth is, is that everything he's saying is steeped in what we would call the, the Jewish theology of his day. Everything that he's saying, certainly, and I won't take the time, but there are passages that, that talk about all of it. But I, I, it is very interesting. I just want to turn to two quick places. Okay. In, first, in Acts, 
In Acts chapter 14, go back a few chapters. There's something really very interesting here. In Acts 14, we see Paul uh, bringing a message uh, of Messiah uh, uh, to Gentiles. Okay? And, uh, you, you know, this is where, um, uh, in verse 11 of chapter, he's in uh, 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 Lystra, right? Uh, not a Jewish town. It says, but it says in verse 11, and when the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the uh, Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker and, you know, so on and so forth, right? So, uh, you know, he's speaking here to pagans. But notice how he responds in verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the good news to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave you rains and, you know, from heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The point is, is that what he says here uh, in verse 15 and 16 in particular is a very like truncated version of this whole speech that he's giving in Athens. And it kind of tells you, evidently, when Paul is speaking to Gentile, you know, Gentile audiences, he's, he talks about God is the creator, the God whom I'm describing to you, is the creator and the sustainer uh, of, of the universe, of not only of Israel, but of all of, all of mankind. Uh, and so, you know, he's saying, this is your, he's your God, not just my God, but he's your God too. Kind of interesting. Now, the other place, very quickly, I want to turn us to Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, again, Paul's, except for the new revelation about Yeshua, his theology comes from here. His theology, when you read, when you read uh, the letters of Paul and what you read in his speeches, chapter basically uh, 28 to 32 of, uh, of Deuteronomy is his, this is how he understands the world and what God has done in Messiah Yeshua, okay? I remember uh, a few years ago in an MSI class on Paul's use of Deuteronomy. We had a whole class. Paul's use of Deuteronomy. This is so important. So in Deuteronomy chapter 32, right, uh, he says first in, uh, in verse uh, 8, he says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, and he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Uh, Jacob uh, is the allotment of his inheritance. And so here he talks about giving the nations their inheritance, right? Uh, and setting the boundaries of the peoples. Uh, I would suggest that in chapter 17, uh, it's not a coincidence 
uh, that he makes uh, this statement uh, here. Uh, you know, when he says uh, here, he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, as we said, for, and it, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his uh, offspring. Uh, being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think uh, that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art uh, and thought of, uh, of, of men. So he's describing the, the creator and the sustainer uh, of the universe. Uh, and then he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that, every, that, that all everywhere uh, should repent. And so he's saying here that, you know, uh, God uh, uh, gave the nations their way, just like it says in Romans. I don't have time to unpack the whole thing. Uh, it really is beyond the scope of a sermon. <laughs> but in Romans chapter 1, that's where he says he gave them over. You know, he gave them over. I'll give you what you want, so to speak. Well, God gave the nations over. And, and yes, there's always only been one way of salvation, but he's never made himself impossible to find by the nations. He called Israel to be the, the, the microphone, he called Israel to be the spokespeople to bring this message to the nations, but he's never been impossible to find. And what he's saying just in real time to those people is, you know, now the time has come when God has now made uh, this message easy to find for everybody. Not only Israel, but the Greeks also. You know, when he uses the term grope, like, you know, like being blind and trying to, trying to figure it out. And that's how he understands these sophisticated Greeks. You, 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 want, you want it, but this is the best you can do. Now I'm coming to tell you the good news is you can really know him, not just intellectually, not as a, not as a philosophical construct, but you can really know the, the creator and the sustainer of the universe. What, because that's what you really want. With all these gods, that's what you're really striving for, and that's what you want. So then he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that, to men that all everywhere should repent. What? Uh, you talk about chutzpah, right? To turn, turn to the one and only God because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. It's, all, it's really kind of humorous what, in, in, in kind of a theological way, <laughs> a little theological humor, in that he doesn't, notice what he doesn't say. He, you should repent because if you're lonely uh, or if you don't feel good about yourself uh, or if you want, like you Epicureans, you want to live a pleasurable life, uh, or, or, or you Stoics, you, you want to like just, you know, be, be, 
be right with nature, I, I, this is the way. No, he doesn't say that. What he says is there's a fixed day in which he will judge the world. There's accountability. So he's like cutting through all the philosophies. And he's saying that this creator, this sustainer, this giver of life, we're all accountable to him. Every one of us, us Jews, us simple Jews, and you sophisticated Greeks, uh, all of us. He will judge the world in righteousness. In other words, in the right way, you know, in the right thing. Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting. He's saying, using kind of like just secular language, uh, pointing to Daniel chapter 7. <laughs> you know, he doesn't talk about the Son of Man coming in the clouds. He doesn't talk about, uh, you know, God being the judge of the, uh, judge of the earth. But he's saying now God has, uh, has done this. And, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, in another place in Deuteronomy, in the fourth chapter, in the fourth chapter, uh, in a couple of places, it says, uh, well, I'll just read one. I, I, in verse 6, it says, so keep and do them. This is the, the law of God, right? For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it uh, as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? See? Uh, and, and so it's you know, just very interesting that this is who the God of Israel is, that he is knowable, but we are accountable to him. But if we repent, of course, he's not giving the whole message here, but if we turn to him, there's forgiveness in, in the Messiah, and, and we can know him, and, and so on and so forth. Okay, uh, but so anyway, so he says, there's a fixed day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof by all men by raising him from the dead. Okay. So the, it's all sounding kind of interesting, perhaps. But as soon as he says, raised him from the dead, it's like, well, what? You know, I, 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 when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So in other words, you know, we don't know if this was the end of what he wanted to say or did he get interrupted and he had to stop. It seems the way it's written is that when as soon as he ta started talking about the resurrection, they're, they're like, now they're like, uh, you know, uh, there's a problem in the midst, right? And he, and he stops. So he doesn't say everything. He doesn't share the entire message of salvation uh, uh, with them. But, but this is what, this is his message. God is creator. God is the sustainer. God is the judge. And by repentance, of course, you know, God is the, the, uh, the forgiver and the, the, the redeemer. Okay. I, and so I, I, then we read here, 
uh, so Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Denetius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay, so he gives this message, and it's what's interesting is, is that he doesn't stick around, and a few people receive the message. In our world, we would have called this like, oh, it's too bad, Paul. You know, you, uh, you didn't see much fruit there. It wasn't evidently not, uh, you know, too important or, or worthy. But the fact is, it certainly was. And by the way, isn't it always interesting that Luke goes out of his way to tell us that men and women uh, uh, both uh, received the Lord in all of these situations. And then it says at the beginning of verse 18, chapter 18, and after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. That's it. Okay. He left Athens and now he goes to uh, 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 Corinth. So what is our, uh, you know, what is our uh, takeaway? Uh, what is our takeaway from this? Well, there's certainly, is, there's a couple of really important things. One is, it's really important to be ready at all times, right? Always important to be ready at all times. Here, you know, he's in the, um, he's in the synagogue and, uh, uh, and he's talking to Jews and he's talking to God-fearing uh, uh, Gentiles, people that are kind of like, you know, in the purview. Now he's in the public square speaking to, uh, you know, sophisticated pagans. Now, he was, a, he was a wise man, Paul. He was no simpleton. Uh, but he was ready, and he, and he knew what he was going to say. Also, the fact that he doesn't uh, have the good news, like, memorized, right? Like, this is the only way to share the message. No. What we see here is a real distinction in the way the message gets communicated to Jews and the way the message gets communicated to pagans. Even, you could go so far as to, to say, there's a way the message gets uh, communicated to Jerusalem Jews, Hellenistic Jews, and, uh, you know, and pagans, because there are some similarities between Stephen's speech and this one, which is another story for another day also. Uh, but the, the point being is, you know, when we're talking, when we have the opportunity to share the good news with someone or something, you know, we, one, we need to be ready and we need to just be able to not have it, not be ready like with, okay, no, I better say this or I better not say this. Or, we just need to have an archishkis, as we would say in the old country, you know, inside of us. I know who I am and I know in whom I believe and I can communicate it to someone, even if I can't, even if I don't um, quote chapter and verse. And I would say in our world, it gets even simpler because most people, Jew or Gentile, have no idea where anything is in the Bible and are not impressed uh, with, well, it says in Isaiah chapter 10 or, you know, in Joel chapter 2. Most people that don't know the Messiah are not really interested in chapter and verse, but in who you are and, and how it gets communicated, you know? Uh, and also, uh, if we, uh, it is also important to be kind of, I'm not going to say well-read because not everybody is uh, 
a reader or not everybody is a, a student all the time. I understand all that. But it is important to kind of know what's going on around you. That if you're talking to somebody X, Y, and Z out here, uh, you need to know a little bit about them. Like, for example, let's say in this neck of the woods, in this part of Columbus, there's a good chance you could uh, uh, talk to someone from Somalia. I think it'd be kind of be important to know something about about Somalians or about Islam. If I'm going to share the message, not just you're wrong and we're right, okay? Uh, but we need to know something about them because, like the Athenians, they're real people. And what, the way Paul, the way Paul understood these people as they're they're groping and they're searching. Uh, but now we're living in the days when God has put the spotlight on and all peoples can, you know, can, uh, can reach out and know the Lord without having to go to Jerusalem or to become Jewish. Uh, right. And so uh, knowing something about the people that, that we're reaching, uh, being prepared and ready at all times. Uh, and really, ha and what that ends with is really having a desire for people to, to love people, that they might know the Lord. And when we come across people who are so diametrically opposed to where we're coming from, to not just be pointing out their, their wrongs, or even pointing, you know, because he does say, God is the creator of all of us. Me and you, Mr. Stoic, Mr. Epicurean, me and you, we're, we all come out of the same egg of humanity. You know? And I think that is a very important aspect of, of uh, our worldview to understand and appreciate. And, uh, and so there we go. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, as we're kind of getting back to meeting together, you know, I'm thinking in terms of isn't it's yeah, it's great that we're meeting together and all that, but we need to get back on the horse in our in our mission and what God has called us to be and, and to do. Uh, not just to get by until we're back, you know, or that that kind of thing. Uh, but hey, remember our vision experiencing Israel's future today, uh, our mission of being a testimony in word and deed of the Messiah. Uh, of who he is, uh, and may uh, we take advantage of every opportunity uh, to share the good news. And of course, uh, uh, God has given us a uh, you know part of our very important part of our mission is is reaching the, the Jewish people with the good news of, of the Messiah. And may God give us many opportunities to bring this great good news to our people and to all people. Uh, and uh, uh, may God uh, use us mightily in that, and uh, may, uh, may we be prepared and ready and desirous to serve. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, uh, thank you for um, this great motivating word, God, and, uh, and I pray, Lord, that we would indeed be uh, prepared and, uh, and uh, ready, Lord, uh, not only to enjoy the fellowship of one another, uh, but that we might look outward from ourselves as a, a kihila, as a community, 
uh, Lord, and may we fulfill the calling to which you have called us. We thank you in Messiah's name.